no one. Welcome to episode three. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for your ratings and follows. Please spread the word and continue to rate this podcast. I'm now streaming from Podbean, Apple, Spotify, and Google. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram, guys, and request to join our Facebook group. You can reach out to share your stories by being a contributor or simply listen and be a supporter. Last episode, we heard from Bianca and Joe, and I'm so grateful to those guys for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I also discussed my wheel of wellness and the four tasks that I wanted to accomplish for that particular week. I chose four meaningful things to get through the week, but these things were not things I could do for myself. They were for others. Our gestures that would in turn help with my well-being, you know, to do good, feel good thing. So here's what happened. My first one, I had to reach out to someone I hadn't spoken to in a while. I reached out to my friend, Melissa. Me and Melissa had a snafu about, about nothing a few months back and well, time kind of got away from us. I picked up the phone and we talked and laughed about that same nothing for an hour. Next, I was supposed to smile at a stranger. I went into the grocery store and smiled at a random old lady. She smiled back and said, hello. Number three was that I had to tell someone I loved him. I called my nephew and told him I loved him. I chose him because he's not so warm and fuzzy. He said, cool, cool. I spoke to him again the next day and said, I love you again. He paused and said, chum on auntie, I love you too, you know. That's basically Jamaican for why you have to make me say it. I love you too. My final one was I had to post an act of gratitude on Facebook. I posted my gratitude for my niece in Atlanta on Facebook, who has my curry puppy. I posted it two days in a row. She was very grateful, reached out, and we chatted for a while. Didn't I tell you guys I would always find a way to talk about curry puppy? Brace yourself. <laughs> Seriously though, this felt amazing. These small acts of kindness made me feel great inside and having that positive energy was awesome. I've now taken it off my wheel of wellness and will share on both Instagram and Facebook so you guys can see it. Dear no one, without further ado, I want to introduce this episode's guest. Darnell Lamont Walker is a writer, director, and filmmaker. He's known for his book, Creep, an award-winning documentary, Set Yourself on Fire released in the U.S. in 2018 and 2019 in London. Darnell will discuss his documentary, Outside the House, released in 2017, which focuses on mental health and particularly in the African-American community. Last episode, we touched upon grief, and this episode takes a deeper dive into the various stages of grief through his documentary. So welcome to Dare No One podcast, Darnell. I'm very grateful you took time out to chat with me. When I watched Outside the House, I thought it was heart-wrenching and hit a little bit too close to home. You said that this film is a kind of therapy. It is brave men and women sharing their stories, pains, truths, and struggles as they deal with mental illness, showing others they are not alone. What made you decide to do this documentary and share these stories? Well, I mean, for me, um, I think what got it started was my 
come here, would you take us in? Uh, and you know, I put that film together. And while I was doing the editing and, and started touring with the film, um, and even talking with some of the people who were in there, you know, I realized that a lot of folks had been dealing with PTSD from living here in the States, uh, depression, anxiety, um, and so many other things. And after I addressed that, I said, well, I guess you know, the next film has to be about uh, mental health and how we're handling it as black people, especially living here in the U.S., uh, what we're doing to get by, why we aren't seeking the help we need, and so forth. And that's how it came about. Oh, wow. That's pretty powerful, powerful stuff. Um, so I know my listeners are wondering, who are you? Who the hell is this guy, and what's the juice on him? <laughs> so, <laughs> so tell us more about who you are and why you chose this quest. Okay, yeah. So I, you know, I actually have no idea who I am. It's always funny <laughs> when I get that question because I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I am just this guy out here in the world, just trying to maintain my happiness, um, making film, taking pictures, writing. when that girl said someone asked her what do you have to be depressed about 
were you surprised on some of the things you heard? And if so, which one in particular surprised you? talking about um, race relations, I feel like sometimes people feel like African Americans make everything about race. However, I do think that lineage, lineage, excuse me, has a lot to do with this topic and the systemic racial issues that come with that. Why are race relations so important to mental health and why should our listeners care? Could you repeat that question, sir? Sure. I said, um, why are race relations so important to mental health and why should our listeners care? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's like black people, especially, we have a long history of not trusting uh, med- uh, well, medical professionals in any medical field. Um, and so, depending on who the listeners are, whether they are therapists, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, mm-hmm. uh, then they need to know that they're, they're already going into a into an industry that they want to help black people, then they need to somehow build that trust and they need to figure out how to how to penetrate these communities and um, if they if they plan on doing good work in those communities. Um, for people who are dealing with mental health issues, um, we need to know that sometimes we don't have as, as much access to those services in our neighborhoods and we need to fight for those services. Uh, we need to uh, keep an eye out, and even sometimes those services aren't when they when they aren't in our neighborhood. We need to go look for them uh, where they are. You know, uh, there are a lot of uh, mental health professionals who are white uh, who set up in, in white neighborhoods and or predominantly white neighborhoods, uh, but we don't see that in, in black neighborhoods. Um, but more and more now that more and more people are talking about their mental health, we have more and more mental health professionals who are taking their time and their resources um, to go into the neighborhoods and say, hey, once a week I'll be here. So just keeping an eye out for things like that, um, it's very important. No, I agree. And I'm wondering too, is this the reason why African Americans tend to shy away from facing mental health issues? Well, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, um, you know, there's there's talks that we do tend to shy away from mental health issues. And why do you suppose this is? Oh, just 
again, is growing up and being told over and over, like, we don't talk about these things. Um, it's a, a part of being um, seen as strong. And so we know we talk about our mental health as being not so great or not all the way intact. Or if we had an anxiety attack or a panic attack or we felt some kind of depression and we share that, then we're seen as weak people or we're seen as uh, that that special person in the family. Like we all have that one special aunt or that one crazy uncle or <laughs> someone in the family who's touched and it's like, you know, you grow up and it's it's just what it is. You don't think much about it. And then right. one day you, you see a film like this, like outside the house and you're like, oh my God, I've been calling them crazy and they've just been dealing with this mental health thing and no one's ever discussed it. No one ever helped them work that out. Maybe they could have been someone better had someone been willing to talk to them. Um, and so, the, yeah, that's what it is. You know, we just don't want to be seen a certain way. Like, I have a friend who, um, like, since, since I made this film, and even before making this film, I had a lot of friends who came to me to talk to me about their mental health struggles just because they felt that was someone they could trust. And a lot of times, like, we weren't even great friends. It could be, like, we met last week and they just felt like they could talk to me. Right. And I'm talking to them and they're telling me, you know, uh, I wish I could talk to my friends this way, my best friends this way. And it's like, why can't you? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, they see me as the strong friend in the group. And so what will they think then? And I was like, well, do you know, it takes a lot of courage to to be the person, in the, to be someone who says, I'm having a problem. I was like, so how, how would they see you as weak if, if you're doing something that most people can't do? Like, and that's admitting that you have this issue. I, it's so funny that you mentioned this, this seeing themselves as weak because that kind of lead in, leads into my other question. You know, one of the things I appreciated about this film was that you, see, you saw males, African-American males, discussing their mental health issues. We live in a society where males are taught to tough it up. You can't show vulnerability. And an African-American male in particular has a certain facade he has to keep up. What is your take on that? And, you know, and, and on just this particular subject, and how has that need to stay silent worsened the mental, health, mental well-being of the African-American male in particular? Yeah, like, you know, you grow up and, you're, you you hear over and over like a man's supposed to leave the household and he's supposed to mm-hmm. not cry and he's supposed to do this he shouldn't be too affectionate it's like that's killing black boys and killing black men like black boys probably still but I know at the time that I made this film were the um, were the fastest rising group of suicides at the time mm-hmm. and it's like because they've been told why are you crying right you know why why, you know, hide those emotions. You need to be strong for it. You know, and over and over in films, you see parts where, like, the father's dying and he tells his son, be strong for your mother. Where it's like, what? Mm-hmm. No. Tell these boys they can cry and they can hug <laughs> and, and hold each other and uh, be affectionate toward one another. It doesn't mean anything. It just means that, hey, they have more people to support them and more people who love them. Um, but it's, it's like those older generations, like... Uh, you know, like my father's generation and all the generations before them, and even so many people in my generation as well, right. who had kids, and they just hear over and over, this is how you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Like, imagine like imagine all the black men who died, and who died, who didn't get a chance, who never was, 
because mm-hmm. we had to keep all this stuff in and you couldn't let any of it out. And so a lot of times, what happened, like I wrote this thing years ago about, you know, it's easier to ask for, uh, it's easier to ask for sex than it is to ask for a hug. <laughs> and so there's so many people who go out and to, for sex, like a lot of these, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of men go out and just have sex and sex and sex and sex, when in reality all they really want is a hug. And if someone could give it to them, then things would be better. That's like I remember so watching a show. Yeah, I remember watching a show. Um, what was it called? The First Forty Eight. And you know, on that show, someone dies. Of course, at the beginning, you, you see a body, and they try to find out who killed who, who killed this person. Mm-hmm. And it's a real show, um, reality show. And so they found the suspect, and they're talking to him in the room, and he's he's just so hard. He's like, I'm not, I'm not the side. I didn't do it. Whatever. Mm-hmm. And you see him like sitting there, but you just see, you just you could feel it like it was so thick. You could feel that there was something that he needed to get out. Right. And so and so the the cop just reached over and grabbed his hand and was like, "You can talk to me, you know." And the boy just he, it was like this release, like you could feel the release mm-hmm. just come out. He was just like, ah. and it was like that's all he wanted. Like probably in his entire life, all he wanted was someone to just touch him and love him. And he never got it, and so he acted out in, in however he acted out. And so, it's, so not being able to do that is really killing a lot of black boys and black men. No, that is powerful stuff, and it is chilling that there could be so many African Americans living with mental health issues, issues, excuse me, such as clinical depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and they never get diagnosed because of mm-hmm. poor. Healthcare, even, or if you have taken it, taken their issues outside the house, like you said, what do you say to these people, Donnell? What would you offer them? I, you know, I'd say um, one that it takes a lot of courage to to be quote unquote weak. Like what we see is weak, it, as far as mental health goes. It takes a lot of strength to be that weak. You know, mm-hmm. and it's not weak at all. So I would say that first, it's not weak, but a lot of people see it as that, and it takes a lot of strength. And then two, once you realize, like in the film, in the end, um, um, one of the participants' names, Omar. So Omar, in the end, says, you know, if there's anything that you feel keeps you from being your authentic self, then it's worth taking a look at. And mm-hmm. I, I say for that, then. So I talked a little bit about grief, not a whole lot, but and how 
it's so important to go through the stages, you know, that is so important to our well-being. And um, so I went on, you know, especially with dealing with COVID-19 right now, right? So I went on the internet and I found these five stages of grief by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler. And they're denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So the point is that the... The point is that you must go through all stages to properly heal. So when you're hearing these stories or when you think of just mental well-being, um, how do you suppose that not going through all stages of grief um, is linked to these mental health issues? Yeah, you know, what was the first one again? So, so the first one is denial, yes. Right, and I think a lot of us, I think a lot of us we get we get there we we'll, we make it there and we sometimes don't get any further because we fight it so hard like it's like so we're stuck and we're stuck there we're stuck at denial um, and he, like even in this uh, this pandemic and this quarantine I've um, I think a lot of us have gone through through those stages in this quarantine. Like, even me, like, I, I told someone yesterday, I was like, you know, I think I finally reached the acceptance stage. Um, and some people aren't making it past denial. Some people aren't making it past uh, rejection. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, it's, but denial, like, we get to denial, and it's like, no, I don't have a problem. Because if I, if I, if I ever admit that I have a problem, then it's so much that comes with that. Which is why, you know, it's, again, it's like one of those things where stigma plays a big part in it. We have right. to kill stigma. Um, you know, no one wants to be labeled as crazy cousin so-and-so or uncle so-and-so. You, you know, you go to the, you, you go to a therapist one time and they're like, oh, you know, something's wrong with him. Um, God forbid you get taken to the psych ward. You know, it's like. That's crazy, cousin so-and-so. You will always have that, no matter, you know. And you might be the healthiest person coming out of there in your family, uh, the healthiest person in your family once you come out. Once they, once you go in and you've really realized your problems, once you get to the acceptance stage and you've accepted, you can't, re- you can't, there's no way to move on or restore yourself or replenish yourself unless you've accepted. So you can't be in denial and then get better, you know. You have to go through these things to get to the place where you can say, you're right, I do have a problem. I think I need to go, like even in the film you have, I remember it was one woman in the film who she fought it for so long and went to a, went to a doctor and the doctor, and she had all these, all these issues, she had all these health issues and couldn't figure out what it was. They, they ran tests, they, had, they couldn't figure out what was going on with them. And then the doctor just came in the room and was like, you know, we can't find anything wrong with you. And then he just uh, took her, like, put her face in his hands and said, do you think you're depressed? And she just burst into tears and started crying Mm. and realized for the first time, like, oh, my God, that's what it is. And probably she probably knew it, but she just couldn't accept it. Right. And so, you know, it's it's one of those things. And, you know, we have to go through that and we have to accept it if we want it to get better. Wow, that's, yeah, wow. So, do you think our current 
crisis with the novel coronavirus is cause for grief. Oh, absolutely. I, like, there's so much that we've lost. Like, it's, de- it's like a death. Like, I, you know, jokingly, but very real. I right. Know, I told someone that I was in the acceptance stage. I was like, you know, outside died. And here we are. Here I am grieving. And, like, we lost a lot of things. We're losing people. We don't know if we're going to die. We don't know if someone we love is going to die. Um, a lot of our life is gone. Um moment it'll come back if we survive this but we don't know it's a lot of ifs out there and so yeah i think it's a huge cause for grief for so many people um which is why i'm like like i don't blame anyone for doing whatever it is they're doing if they're trying to go outside and whatever go outside i mean i think you need to stay healthy and and i'm against doing anything absolutely crazy like the people who are fighting to open these open these places like if that's that's gonna if that's gonna kill more people then that's not do it um but we've lost so much that those people are just trying to hold on to what little they have left um through this grief and it's it's the same thing you see after you know a close friend or a family member dies it's like uh, i can't accept this yet i gotta do what i gotta do to keep their memory alive or whatever so yeah, I think it's a huge cause for it. Okay, thank you for that, um, Darnell. So I actually believe that it's really important to understand that every time we hear of a loss too, that's also time for us to go through these stages. I'm no psychologist, guys, let's face that fact, but I've been there. I've been in denial, you know, and then getting through to the anger stage, you, you get so angry because you're like, well, why is this happening? You know, and then you start to get mad at even yourself. And then you get to that bargaining phase, and what I think is interesting is that you absolutely have to get to that depression in order for it to become the next phase, which is acceptance. So I really, you know, just find all of this interesting and just so important to our well-being. I want to read those steps again. So it's denial, it's anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, so... And Darnell, I want to pose this question to you. So if you could reach one person right now who's going through extreme grief, what would you say to that particular person? Um, I'd say to feel what you feel. Don't fight it. Um, Don't try to control it. There there are things that you can't control. and And what you're feeling now it's one of those things. Um, don't put it off. Don't try to hide it. Just feel what you feel. Allow yourself to feel it and allow yourself to go through it. And you, in order to get through it, to get through those stages to, to eventually reach the acceptance stage. Like, it will get better. Um, and you, one day you'll wake up. You know, you wake up now and you think, and it's the first thing on your mind. You're like, you know, this is what's happening. I hate it here. Um, I'm depressed again. I don't want to open the windows. I don't want to open the blinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually, you one day you'll wake up and you'll open the window, and maybe not even notice it'll be you just open it. And then eventually you'll open the blinds, and then eventually you'll wake up smiling and dancing. And you'll you'll look back and say, "Oh my God, I went through that." Like I know that's what happened. Like that's what happens. Uh, but you have to let yourself feel it. You have to let yourself go through it. Um, because a lot of people who are going through like extreme grief, like this might, this is probably not the first time that they've gone. 
That makes sense. Um, I I feel like I had one of my acceptance moments this morning. I I definitely feel that way, especially with this COVID crisis. It's just been really interesting. Um, but no, I think it is important to go through all those stages. So I recently watched, and I want to shift gears just a little bit, um, but I recently watched a webinar stream by my alma mater, Cornell University, and it was called A Community in Crisis, The Impact of COVID-19 on Black People in America. So the video had a list of panelists who were Cornelian alums um, who were serving on the panelists, like um, Senator Adam Hollier, Ernie Jolly, and Christine Sandville, um, Anthony Brown, and the moderator was KHAU Houston reporter Janelle Fort. Um, and they were just talking about um, African Americans dying at a disproportionately higher rates because of substandard housing and inequity and lack of access to health care. It gave some alarming numbers of the rate in which African Americans were dying. So it talked about how New Orleans, for example, 33% of the population are African Americans, but yet 56% were attributed to deaths from COVID. So she, Janelle Ford, who is a reporter, she said that these are challenges caused and exasperated by racism. This goes back to what we said earlier about race relations and its significant impact on healthcare. What do you think about healthcare in general and its link to mental health care for black people in America? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that it, it does go back, like, uh, I don't know if you watched the show Black AF yet. Um, I have not yet. Yeah, but like every episode he drives at home, like he's like, he's like anything, any question you ask me, the answer will always be because of slavery. And Actually, I have seen that show. I'm sorry. I've seen the yeah, first episode. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, it's, it's a running joke on the show, but it's, a lot of it is so true. But, like, I think that a lot of what's happening is because of racism. Like, you know, we, we have communities, we have hospitals and clinics put into communities where we shouldn't be living. But we have to we live there because it's what we can afford because we can't get certain jobs because we couldn't get into certain schools because we couldn't do this and it all goes like once you trace that line back it all it all goes back to the same things you know what i mean it always go it always goes back to that racism like i was talking right. to someone the other day about why we're dying at disproportionate rates and part of it is because of our distrust for the health system which we, we can trace back to the millions of times we've been experimented on, like Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks. And, um, then you have, uh, and then you also have situations where, you know, if I go to a hospital, I live here in this hospital, if something happens to me, I get out. You know, and I'm telling you, this is the hospital I went to. Like, these are the hospitals we have access to. The good hospital was all the way across town. I remember being in D.C., when I was at Howard, and um, I got bit by a spider. Howard Hospital 
in our neighborhoods. Um, build a community, build a system where we we can trust you. Show us that we can trust you. A couple years ago, and I'm from Virginia. I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia, and University of Virginia Hospital. Um, at least a few years ago, was one of the top 100 hospitals um, in the U.S. And they have a, a apparently they had a top medical school and all this other stuff. But they had a study done, and in the study, there was an alarming number of medical school students who didn't believe that black people felt pain. That's crazy. And, yeah, and so you're telling me that I, you're sending me up to this hospital where these doctors don't feel like I feel the same pain as these white people. And so I had and I had a situation where I had a um, um, blood clot in my leg, and, and it's extremely painful, like extremely painful. Mm-hmm. I couldn't walk or anything. And so I'm in the hospital. I was in there for a couple days in pain. And he comes in, and he's like, okay, we're going to write your prescription. Um, and he writes the prescription, and it's for, um, it was like, Vicodin or Percocet, but it was like mixed with Tylenol, like a very a much weaker version. Right, of a milder this. version. Right, and so I, so I, so the first thing that comes out of my mouth, I'm looking at the prescription. I'm like, oh, is this because I'm black? <laughs> and, and he said, and it's a white doctor. And he's like, what? <laughs> what did he, said, he say? <laughs> and I was like, are you writing me this prescription because I'm black? He's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, this has Tylenol in it, and I feel like if I was a white patient you would give me the real drug. I said, because I just told you how much pain I'm in. Not only did I tell you, you also know because you studied this and you you know how painful this is. And you're going to give me Tylenol for it? And he was like, I'm so sorry, that's not it. I said, well, write me a real prescription. And he did. He wrote me the prescription. Um, it's, a, it's a fact that black babies in the NICU get less medication than white babies in NICU. Um, like, it's, it's crazy. Like, this is what we deal with. And so, when it's so what happens in black neighborhoods when we are out here getting um, COVID-19, it takes us days to go in because we're like, oh, you know what? I might be able to fix this at home. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to go just, to the hospital and die. Right. Let me take this Mucinex um, because I feel like when I get to the hospital, this is all they're going to give me anyway. Like, I like. We, that's, this is, these are the things we say before we get there. And I hope like white doctors are listening to this because these are things that we say when, when before we get there. It's like all they're gonna do when I get there is give me a Tylenol, so I might as well do that at home. And then they're gonna charge me sixteen thousand dollars for that Tylenol. <laughs> right. So I look look at how many people have died already um, who went to the hospital and were t- and was told just go home and uh, gargle with hot water or you know like some bullshit. And that's interesting that you said that. Actually, one of my upcoming episodes, I'm going to have um, a doctor on, and we're going to talk some more even about this because um, I heard an inkling about how COVID affects, affects African-Americans, um, and it attacks particularly their liver, so it affects them in a certain way. I don't have enough information on that, so I don't want to dive too much into that, but... Um, Dr. Kenneth Hall is going to come on a later episode to de- to take a deeper dive at that, but I can actually relate to going across town. I live in D.C. as well, so um, I've definitely jumped in an Uber one night. I was feeling um, extreme pain, and I went across town so that I wouldn't have to deal with 
the you know a, a subpar hospital and I was I remember I was in so much pain like the uber driver turned around and he was like are you okay and I was like yeah just get me there I literally drove a half an hour and I it's not that I didn't feel like I was having an emergency I just wanted my care to be diagnosed properly and you know got the proper care that I need but it's just fascinating how this is this is not something that's in our heads it's not something that we make up um but you know just switching back gear well switching gears back to your um documentary i wanted to ask you about something that i think is important so after watching the documentary it was clear to me why you chose the title outside the house but to our listeners i wanted to ask you was this one of those aha moments for you i guess at what point did you come up with this title? Why that yeah. title? You know, um, well, the, you know, the title, that title, because over and over, we, so many of us have heard that, like, we don't share this outside the house. Uh-huh. Um, and it's kind of a, a double entendre where it's like, you know, you hear, we don't share this outside the house, but also, um, it's time we come outside the house and talk about these things. Right. Um, I think for, I don't know if there was an aha moment for it. I think there was a moment where I said, you know, I'm going to call it outside the house. And then someone was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. And I was like, huh, I guess it is. It is. It was like, it, it, uh, it was a moment of, wow, so many of us have heard this over and over and over. And you realize that we all grew up in the same household. Like, it's like we all grew up together. In one big house, right? African-American yeah, house. house. One big problematic <laughs> house where we didn't talk about anything. Seriously. Um, so, towards the end of the film, we saw the words, depression and anxiety aren't always noticeable. And while we're looking for sad faces, it's the smiling ones we lose. Then you showed Josh Marks, Karen Washington, among other faces that we assume are faces of people who have committed suicide. This is why I think it's so important for us to shift our focus a little bit here on resources because the suicide rate is crazy. We talked about that a little bit earlier. So let's talk about some of the resources that are out there. There's a National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 1-800-237-8255. What other resources related to mental wellness do you recommend? Um, I'd say, you know, become familiar with uh, your local organizations, um, like even the ones that deal with drug abuse, drug addicts, alcohol uh, abuse, um, like they, because they deal with those, uh, because they deal with those things, there's all also a mental health component there, and if right. they aren't able to help you, they can, they can put you in touch with someone. Um, like I know the place back home in my hometown is called uh, Region 10 and everyone in town knows them for helping like addicts deal with things mm-hmm. um, so when people said well you know I don't think we have anything around here I'm like yeah we have Region 10 they, that's what they're there for um, and no one really knew right um, so it's like become familiar with those things search around the net be, don't be afraid to ask for referrals some of your friends might be seeing a therapist and you don't even know it and <laughs> so they true. can refer you to one no, that's so true. Um, so another one I wanted to mention is the crisis text line, 
um, you know, we love to text nowadays, so you can actually text HOME to 741-741, that's H-O-M-E to 741-741, and you can connect with a crisis counselor that way. Um, so, <laughs> I know I've asked you a lot of questions. This has been enlightening for me. I hope my listeners feel the same way. There's so many people without a job right now, without food, or just with upended lives. People who felt like their struggle was finally getting to a place of calm, and then suddenly, poof, not only is that struggle back, but it has multiplied. I can't imagine right now anyone who isn't going through this not feeling some type of grief and, you know, just just hopelessness um, surrounding COVID particularly. Um, what would you say to people, um, and we've touched upon this a little bit, but if you've add anything, if you want to add something extra, what would you say to people right now who's feeling lost or hopeless? Yeah, I'd say, you know, so many, you aren't alone, first of all. Um, you aren't alone at all. There are so many of us who feel the same way. Uh, probably people very close to you, and they just aren't able to open up about it. And I, I say reach out. Reach out and, and share that with someone who can help you get through it. Uh, there's someone who, who would be more than open to listen to you. Um, because they want someone to listen to them, but both of you are too afraid to say it. And so I say, reach out, um, and you aren't alone. Okay. Um, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with me, Darnell. To my listeners, thank you, thank you. So to my listeners, thanks for listening. If you haven't already watched Outside the House, um, definitely go watch it. Um, I promise that you will not be disappointed. Please recommend it to someone you may know who need help. Um, sometimes we overlook things because we think we don't need it, but how cool would it be if you could help someone outside of yourself? Donnell, how do listeners get to your documentary? Uh, you can go to outsidethehousedoc.com. Outsidethehousedoc.com. Um, that's where it is. And you could probably pull, I'm sure you could pull it up on Vimeo if you go to Vimeo and search it, and YouTube as well. Okay. All right. Um, and what about your other documentary, Set Yourself on Fire? I feel like we need a whole show just for that. You definitely have to come back and visit us soon. Oh, I'm down. Yeah, the other one, uh, Set Yourself on Fire, is about sexual assault and rape. That's a trigger warning. Um, but that's at therapemovie.com. And the other is called uh, Seeking Asylum. You can find that uh, on YouTube, Vimeo, um, and on Quale, uh, Quale which is the black streaming service uh, for black films, television, which is a, an amazing service. Uh, so check it out there. Support other black uh, films and um, whatnot. It's great. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Um, there no one. Next episode, we want to talk about domestic violence, um, which is another hotline I want to share real quick. So 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233. So this is super important because since COVID, there's been a rise in domestic violence cases. And I will have Alvin Notice, who's a national domestic violence activist on the show. So um, Darnell, anything else that you'd like to add before we go? Nope, that's it. Okay, thank you. So dear no one, thank you always for listening. Until next time, please, please, please practice social distancing.
always remember to do everything with love and kindness and take care of your well-being. Bye for now.